I'm Roger Baker, Executive Director of the Stratfor Center for Applied Geopolitics at RAIN, a global center of excellence for geopolitical intelligence and analysis. Learn how you can put geopolitics to work for your organization at RAINnetwork.com. Welcome to RAIN's Essential Geopolitics Podcast. My name is Emma Kami, and I'll be your host today. On May 14th, Turkey held national elections that were among the closest in its modern history. Now the country goes to a runoff on May 28th between incumbent president Recep Tayyip Erdogan and his challenger Kemal Kılıç Daroglu. But with the ruling Justice and Development Party having won parliament and the opposition demoralized, it seems an uphill battle for Kılıç Daroglu. Here with me today is Ryan Bull a senior Middle East and North Africa analyst at RAIN. Welcome, Ryan. Thanks for having me, Emma. So let's get started with the basics. Um, why is there a runoff even when Erdogan won the most votes on the 14th? Right. So uh, this is only the second presidential election in modern Turkish history. And uh, that's an important thing to note because Turkey up until this point was parliamentary. So you'd vote for parliament, they'd elect a prime minister. And that's what Erdogan was for, for most of his executive tenure was he was prime minister of Turkey. And in that system, you didn't vote directly for your leader or you'd, you voted for a president who didn't really matter. It was just ceremonial. With the 2018 constitutional reforms implemented, they now elect a president directly, and the president has a great deal more power. And under this system, it means that if nobody wins a 50% majority in the first round, it goes to a runoff between the two top contenders. So this is a direct effect of the constitutional reforms of, of 2018. We would have seen a very different electoral dynamics. We would have also seen that this election would have gone in favor of the AKP already, and we would know the outcome under the previous system. But under this new constitutional reforms, or relatively new constitutional reforms, now we have a system that is similar to what we see in the U.S., where you vote for your president, you vote for uh, a member of Congress, uh, and you can have split outcomes as a result. Thank you. Um, and what are the challenges for the opposition over the next week and a half? Uh, do they still have a chance to take the presidency? So we will say that they do have a chance. Uh, anything truly is possible in these elections, uh, but the signs don't look great for them. Uh, already we've seen the AKP and their allies, the ultranationalist MHP, have managed to take parliament. And that was actually something that a lot of the polls were suggesting wouldn't happen. They were suggesting that the MHP was going to slip beneath the electoral threshold, which in Turkey is 7%. They have to get 7% of the national vote for a party to enter parliament. And it looked like the MHP wasn't going to do so. And if they didn't do so, then it would collapse uh, the AKP's control of parliament, and that would uh, embolden the opposition to turn out uh, for what we did expect, which was the second round in the presidential election. So a lot of people in the opposition are, are going through hand-wringing right now, where they're trying to figure out a viable strategy to defeat Erdogan after he and his party and his allies have already done really well, better than expected, in their first round. And they're playing around with different narratives. One of them that they're trying to walk the, a very narrow line, a very fine line with, is saying that the vote on May 14th wasn't completely uh, above board. They're saying they're finding irregularities, even as they're saying it didn't change the outcome. And this is notable because they're trying to say that the AKP can't be trusted by running the electoral system, so vote for us. But they're trying also not to send the signal to their own voters that their votes don't matter, that the AKP is going to rig the system so you know, you shouldn't even bother showing up. So they're trying to send both messages, and it's really complicated and, and really 
it's it's a narrative that is a little bit hard uh, for an opposition that's already demoralized to get behind. And there's also a belief that now that the AKP and the MHP have control of parliament, control of the presidency isn't as important. You know, parliament, even though <clears throat> we have seen this constitutional reform that's given the president a lot of power to run things by decree and to ignore parliament more often. It's not that the presidency is an all-consuming power. Like, this is not a dictatorship where the president can just do whatever they like and ignore parliament. In theory, if parliament is under the control of the opposition, uh, or if, the, uh, if, the, uh, oppos if there's two different factions controlling the parliament and the presidency, you can end up with the parliament trying to override the president and trying to pass different legislation. Uh, and so even if the opposition is able to capture the presidency, there's no guarantee that that would actually result in Turkey moving in the direction that they want, which again is demoralizing for a lot of voters because they know that a, a major source of power and change within the country is in a parliament whose uh, outcome is already decided. And what do the results on the 14th say about Turkey at large? Uh, it has a poorly performing economy, high inflation, and lots of complaints about the AKP's long rule. Uh, why did so many choose to back them again? Right, and this is, uh, this is such an interesting thing that I think we'll get more data on with the May 28th election when we see the final results. Uh, but we should go into this thinking about the assumptions that led to the idea that this was going to be a close election that, that in many ways should have favored the opposition. Like you said, the, op the economy isn't functioning terribly well. Inflation remains high. Unemployment is high. Um, many people are unable to make their bills. Housing is unaffordable. Rents are unaffordable. Um, there's a lot of questions about whether or not the AKP can be trusted to run the economy. And yet that wasn't enough to tip parliament into the opposition's favor. That was part of our assumptions when we were writing about this as a team and, and talking about this as a team. We thought, well, the lira has hit record low after record low. Basically, one of the big planks of the AKP's legitimacy was the economy, the Turkish, the so-called Turkish miracle of the 2000s. Um, if that's gone, then what does the AKP have left? And they have nationalism, and they have this pseudo-Ottoman approach to the world, and they have this uh, Islamist way of kind of pushing back on secular society here and there. Um, those were still important planks, and apparently those were planks that were important enough to give them that majority in parliament. And maybe we are really seeing that the AKP and its allies better represent Turkey than the uh, than the opposition does. The opposition is a little bit more Euro-leaning, a little bit more liberal, a little bit more traditional in that they're secular, and that might not be the core of Turkish national identity. Even younger Turks may not necessarily identify uh, in that way. And, and as a result, it, it's telling us that, that Turkey's trajectory, even if the AKP had managed, uh, had not managed to get into parliament, that it, Turkey's trajectory would continue much the same, uh, regardless of who's in power. And this kind of goes to the core of our, our geopolitical model. Sometimes leaders don't matter as much as the deeper trends beneath them. The, the leaders can manipulate those trends, they can ride those trends, they can try to take advantage of them, and of course in some cases they can try to resist them, often unsuccessfully. Uh, but Turkey is a good example of maybe it, it, the, the story of Turkey is less about Erdogan and more about these populist trends that are, are, have been building for a long time amongst the population and continue to manifest outwards into its foreign policy, into its domestic policy policy, even into its economic policy. And, um, you know, I, I think it's a, it's a good example of when we need to recheck our assumptions and, and we need to look at Turkey as, as a warning um, that sometimes people will vote 
in ways that don't necessarily align to their wallet. And and we have seen that in other places and other elections where it seems like people should be voting on their wallet. They should be voting on inflation or, or whatever. Uh, and they vote on social or, or political issues instead. And I think Turkey is fitting into that category. So we will see um, what the May 28th results look like. Uh, but we have a pretty good idea that, that Turkish national identity has shifted towards this nationalist and religious outlook. Um, it's not anti-NATO, but it's not completely within NATO. It's not anti-West, but it doesn't want to be subordinate to the West. And and we should be expecting those trends to continue, even if there's an opposition opposition upset on May 28th, and we do see Erdogan uh, exit the, the, the political stage. We should be expecting that a nationalist and a religious Turkey will continue to assert itself uh, in the, for years to come. Well, thank you very much, Ryan. You can learn how geopolitical events like this could affect your business with Rain Worldview. Our flagship risk intelligence products provide clients with access to the insights and analyses they need to make more informed decisions and drive better risk management outcomes. Sign up at rainnetwork.com. That's R-A-N-E network.com. I'm Emma Kami. Thanks for listening.